and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. Devin joins me again for another exciting episode. Uh, what have you been up to, Devin? Oh, I've been uh, wrangling cables. I've been pulling cables out of drop ceilings and installing new cables and zipping stuff together. I've just been doing nothing fun at all, just cleaning house. Wireman <laughs> job, basically, like pulling everything in and yep. putting patch bays, patch bays together. Ugh. Yeah, the entire switching platform is uh, being put into roadie cases so that it's easier to go on site and on location. And we use a TriCaster among with a PreSonus soundboard and all that kind of stuff. So it was so integrated with the studio. We have a bazillion wires all over the place that now need to be pulled out and coiled up and uh, get ready for mobility. And if connections aren't labeled and you don't have everything marked down as to where it went, then it's discovery time trying to figure out where it goes back in again. Yeah, and then you spend your entire day going, damn it. <laughs> well, myself, I was out shooting until four or five in the morning. I think I sent you a few of the images. They're also on yeah. G+. Uh, we were shooting with the A7S at uh, 20,000 ISO. Our special effects team came in, and we were kind of sneaking into an area that we weren't supposed to be filming in. <laughs> and uh, we lit that entire shot that I was showing you with two cell phones. Uh, there's a white screen app that you can download and it allows you to basically adjust the K balance of the output of your screen into one color. So we had two Android phones held <laughs> in the air off to the side and we were able to get that entire shot in like 18 degree weather at night in a place we probably shouldn't have been at uh, <laughs> two hours, one hours worth of shooting. Maybe it was great. It turned out really well. And uh, I'd like to take a, take this opportunity to thank uh, Wetworks Productions for doing the special effects on that. They did a great job on the entire ripped face and the it monster does. makeup. It looks and stuff. fantastic. I was so impressed. Yeah, for what it, looks like total guerrilla filmmaker, it looks straight up legit in your behind the scenes shots. Yeah, I know the the guys um, did that in an apartment like down the block. They brought all of the prosthetics in. We had all the casting done earlier, so that was all ready to go. And then they had the mold sort of set up, but they did all the painting on set and all of the application on set. So it was just, we were in there, they did makeup in like under an hour, and then we shot and got out of there fast. So it was really great, and everybody did a great job. And thanks, guys, for staying up till 4 in the morning with us. Now, moving on down the line here, I've got a correction from last week. We were talking about uh, USB 3.1, and I said that the Forum C connection was reversible. While it is reversible, and that is a new standard, that is only for the connector. That is not a USB 3.1 standard. So I was confused. I thought USB 3.1 was going to bring a reversible connector. Turns out this Form C connector is actually the reversible format, and it's available or will be available for USB 2, 3, and 3.1 in the future. So that's what's going on with that. Also, if you swing over to PCPro.com, they have a really good write-up that goes through all of the uh, USB 3.1 standards. Some of the chips on some of the current motherboards for their USB controllers can be flashed to handle USB 3.1. That's not every single chip, but that is something that's out there. So kind of a confusing but interesting bit with mm-hmm. USB 3.1. Right. Does And you're talking about connectors being reversible. And is is this USB 3.1, that new USB connector that you can use upside down? Uh, no. Okay. Down so that's where one? I got screwed up. I thought that you could use the new USB 3.1 standard is a flippable connector, but it's actually mm-hmm. form. If you uh, look for form C, 
Form C mm -hmm. connector. That's the reversible type. And I see. So that's, the, and I think I'm saying that right. Maybe it's not Form C, but yeah, no, no, Type C. Type C. Thank you. So the Type C connector is the type that you can flip in and and reverse, and it doesn't matter which way you go. The USB right. three standard can still use the standards format, that square little box. And it's also backwards compatible with all the previous versions. Right. So because of that, that particular standard can be issued in either the fully reversible or the just standard square format that we're used to. It's not strictly going to be reversible. And I'm guessing... And I, I appreciate that. That's for the sake of, you know, uh, backwards compatibility. And the smaller connector is really the one that gets dinged up with uh, people plugging in in the wrong way. Full-size USB can take a beating, even though it's still not the best connector. It's friction-based lock, whatever. People complain about it. But still, it's the tiny ones that always get chewed up in people's cell phones and cell phone connectors start to break and stuff like that. So uh, I like that they're slowly rolling this out. Eventually, we'll live in a world with a new standard where everything will just work the first time you plug it in. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. the third time. <laughs> But man, I don't know if we'll actually be seeing this new type of connector in anything in the near future. It looks like uh, motherboards with USB 3.1 are still a ways off. So, you know, I think um, Asus and a couple of the other manufacturers have uh, review units out to a couple of the testers and they have some beta firmware that's available for some of those testers, but it's not really out in the wild yet. I'm guessing it'll be even longer before we see devices that are capable of USB 3.1. So. With that note, let's move on to the news. Time for the news. First up on the news, we've got a new firmware for the GH4. Uh, Canon fourth or excuse me, fourthirdsrumors.com is reporting that there will be a new GH4 firmware update coming down the line by the end of February. The firmware is supposed to feature the legendary V-Log. This was something that was available in uh, Panasonic's Veracams back in the day, and this is basically a full log format for the GH4. A lot of people are excited about this because of the color correction options that this gives you in post, and you can really basically shoot flat, and that's the thing that people are often trying to do by adjusting their settings. Are you excited about this? I'm excited about this. I've been looking at uh, a GH4 pretty closely now with the uh, prices now dropping under $1,200 uh, just to have a 4K camera for when you need to grab 4K or something like that. So I've been – and seeing them continue to update this firmware, that's kind of what I was hoping for with the GH3, and we just had one or two updates. And so I'm glad to see they're putting a lot behind this GH4. I know there's it makes been... me think, are they working on a new camera? Because I know we were talking before, is there a GH5 coming? But – it seems like they're putting a lot of effort in the GH4 for a new camera to be on the way. Exactly. That's kind of what I was thinking. You know, there was all the rumors of a GH5 coming, but why would you issue a new firmware update with more features a couple months before NAB when it would be likely that they would announce a new GH5? So maybe that's going to be another year out and the GH4 will continue to kind of take over the lead. You're right, though. Prices are really nice on the GH4 right now. They are. Well, and I feel like when they announced the GH4 uh, and they showed those flat profiles, because it's still, even without the Veracam style, which I know people are used to kind of color correcting Veracam, so that's why they like it. Uh, it has other log formats, 
And that was something I thought this wouldn't be that hard to add to the GH3, but it's a selling point. They're like, hey, buy our GH4 because it'll have an actual proper log and you don't have to shoot with one of the photo modes. So I, if, that's why I think they would continue the tradition of like, hey, we have a GH5 with V-Log in it now. Yeah. And everyone would be like, oh, okay, I guess I'll upgrade to a GH5. Um, you know, that's that's the way that the business runs. I was always hoping for an update on my GH3 for a log mode, and that never ended up happening. So I, I think I think maybe we might have to wait another year for a GH5, but if they keep up the quality they have, I'm not going to complain if it takes them a little longer to make a good camera. If uh, you're really interested in finding out a little bit more about this, uh, swing over to the show notes and you can check it out. There's a video. Apparently, this was leaked because a camera running the new version was available for handling on the floor at a Tokyo Expo. And somebody managed to shoot some video footage of the camera's uh, firmware. So you can check that out if you want. That's in the show notes. And it is kind of interesting. I'm not on the edge of my seat waiting for a <laughs> vlog, but it's cool. You know, I'm sure somebody will be in love with it and a lot of people will be happy about it. And you can't really complain when a company gives you free stuff for your camera. Absolutely. Now, rolling on to another odd but interesting thing is the Nikon D750 DSLR film kit. This is a $4,000 kit from Nikon, and I've got the bundled list here. Looks like you get a 35mm f1.8, a 50mm f1.8, an 85mm f1.8, and a Thomas Ninja 2 recorder, as well as an AMI-1 stereo microphone. I'm not familiar with that particular microphone. I think that may be made by Nikon itself. I'm not sure. Also, you get a few filters and some extra batteries. That's a $4,000 kit, and I don't know a ton about the D750. I haven't shot on it, but it looks like it's a 24.3 megapixel sensor. It's FX format, which is full frame for uh, Nikon speak. Their DX is their crop sensor format, so... You're getting something looks to be kind of in line with the D800, only with a slightly lower megapixel count. And this, I would assume, has clean HDMI output since they're including a Ninja. Uh, $4,000, is this the kit for people just starting out? I definitely think so. Uh, it still lacks audio. Uh, let's be frank. I mean, that ME1 mic you're talking about is a Nikon mic, which is a $130 mic on its own. And it's, you know, it's good for scratch audio, but it's not really built to be boomed and really pick up a lot of fidelity, um, especially when you compare it to even the Rode series of their kind of lower end DSLR mics. Uh, you know, it's cool because it's a $4,800 value. You know, you're saving 800 bucks by getting all this stuff together. Uh, but part of me feels like this is... I don't know exactly who would be dying and falling all over to buy something like this. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a great kit. It's a great kit to put together, and you are saving a good chunk of money by getting something like this. But especially for a beginner DSLR, like doing a, a, a the Ninja recorder and stuff like that, that adds a bit of complexity that most beginner filmmakers aren't going to, you know, are going to struggle with uh, as opposed to just hitting record on the camera that records, you know? So, and then for somebody who is already in DSLR filmmaking, they have their own lens and possibly maybe even their own ninja and stuff like that. So I'm not quite sure what it's targeted as other than, Hey, remember Nikon, we do DSLR filmmaking too. Cause it seems that, you know, after Panasonic and Canon, Sony has started stealing a lot of thunder. Like you just said with your uh, AS7S uh, in terms of, 
in terms of the gorilla filmmaking and super small form factor cameras doing filmmaking, the camera itself is a great camera, especially if you already have Nikon gear, but I don't know. This feels more like advertising to me than actually a great starter kit. Uh, Cause I can think of a cheaper way to start out filmmaking and you don't <laughs> need all these lenses or all this other stuff. I can see it for rental houses. Sure. I can see rental houses who just buy this kit and then rent it out as a kit. And that makes sense to me but it wouldn't make sense to me then to buy it. I'm kind of looking over the list right here to see how much actual savings you're getting. In their description, they don't really tell you what the difference is, but kind of just quickly looking through the lens selection and the body price and everything, maybe you're saving like five or $600 on this whole well, set and then getting yeah. a few extras. Like Basically, they're throwing in that stereo mic for free and they're mm -hmm. tossing in a couple extra batteries and some filters for free. I don't know if this is super exciting, but I guess if you walked into B&H today and you were like, hey, I need a film, <laughs> you know, I want to film something and I need a kit. What should I get? They're like, well, we have this really nice looking box right here that has all the lenses you can think <laughs> of. It has everything else all just shoved into one and you don't have to think about anything else. You just go with this and maybe grab a wireless mic or something like that. And now you're you're cooking with grease or whatever. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting way to go. I guess I haven't been extremely like excited said, about Nikon. It's not, it, it doesn't seem to be for the beginning filmmaker. And uh, it just, cause there is so many lenses. It's one of those that with filmmakers or video guys starting out, we, you, you know, experts yeah, maybe a zoom them, would hey, be a better start way with to a go. 50. Yeah. I would, or they'll say, Oh. You know, start with this, start with that. Just, you know, like little pieces of gear here and figure out how everything works. This is a complete kit for somebody who actually knows what they're doing. But then I think if they know what they're doing, they either have their own equipment or they're going to customize exactly what they need for a shoot when they rent something. So it still just doesn't, it seems to be a product for nobody. It seem, doesn't seem to fill in any gaps. I mean, nofilmschool.com says it's, uh, you know, you're saving over $800 with the kit with what they priced out, but... Eight hundred dollars. Um, I wonder how much they charge for individual batteries. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, um, true. We all we go third party, but you know, if you buy official Nikon, I'm sure it's a a bit more. Yeah. So I guess if you're a Nikon shooter, there's a little bit of love for you. This might be something to check yeah. out. It's not really on my radar. And like you said, if you own kit, this probably isn't the way to go. So it's a question mark. At least Nikon's trying something new. I would like to see Canon maybe issue out some kind of bundle like this, or maybe uh, Panasonic also have some sort of competing mm -hmm. option. I don't know that a lot of people, like you said, would like to start with a Ninja attached to their camera, but as far as lenses go, I didn't even know Nikon offered a 35 millimeter F1.8. That's kind of nice. <laughs> so yeah. the lens selection looks good. I, well, I guess whatever. Sorry, Nikon. Do better next time. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on down the line to other new stuff. Uh, this hasn't been priced yet, but uh, Voigtlander has been covering a very large range of f0.95 lenses for micro thirds cameras. We've got a 17.5 millimeter, 0.95, a 25 millimeter, and a 42.5 millimeter. So that's your 35, 50, and 85 equivalent for micro four thirds shooters. And those are all 0.95 lenses. Now Voigtlander has kind of in the hands of reviewers right now and listed on B&H, the Voigtlander 10.5 millimeter 0.95 lens. This is another one in their line and basically rounds everything out with a very wide all the way up to your 85. So 
do we need this? And I noticed you posted right down there in the <laughs> in the notes the SLR Magic 12. Doesn't SLR Magic also have something that's a a bit uh, uh, wider yet than 12 millimeter? They do have a 10. They, they do have a 10, but it's T2.2. Ah, okay. So it's not really quite on the same level. Um, no, just looking at things, I've used a few Voigtlanders, and I don't argue that they aren't brilliant glass, especially once you stop them down while they advertise F0.95. Yeah, TJ's got some fantastic... I've got two there. right here. This is the uh, uh, 17.5, and this is the 25. The... 35 is or the 35 millimeter equivalent's much bigger than the 25 millimeter 50 millimeter equivalent so mm-hmm. but anyway uh sorry continue on and you love those um, no no no. i mean you talked about your lenses okay so i've got some <laughs> goods and bads i'm with you on the the image quality i do like my voigtlander and when i want to knock out the background and get that shallow depth of field i immediately reach for my 50 millimeter equivalent this 25 millimeter f0.95 and it's pretty sexy. The 17 millimeter or 17.5 millimeter lens is also very sexy, and I like this as well. The problem is, is I don't know if I got a bad batch or what the deal is with Voigtlander lenses in general. But when you pay, I think I I spent almost a grand on this lens alone right here, and this one was yeah, the 25. Even, yeah, and the 17 was even more expensive. I, I think that was like 1,200 bucks. And look, or well, or listen, I guess. I don't know if you can hear that. That is shift in the lens. So when you are going back and forth, this lens clicks a little bit. It's loose. It's loose. There's a little bit of slop for such an expensive lens. That's disappointing. And so this is a very expensive lens, and I use it all the time, and I like it. But it should not be loose. It should not have a little bit of play when I am focusing in and out. And... I called Voigtlander and kind of talked to him about it, and I've done it several times, actually. And they were like, well, you know, our lenses breathe a little bit. I'm like, that's not breathing. That is like <laughs> a physical imperfection in the lens. And so when I got my brand new 17, it was the same way. Like, there's a little bit of slop down here at the bottom. The focus ring is nice and smooth, but because the uh, part that attaches to the camera itself flexes just a little bit, you get like a little bit of a click when you're going in and out with your mm. focus. And I mean, that's the whole reason to buy this is a manual focus lens. You're going to be manually focusing. You're going to be pulling focus with this thing. Yeah. And it has a little bit of play. That's really frustrating. And this isn't a cheap lens. And, you know, normally I say Voigtlander stuff is made really well. These two are only made pretty decently. <laughs> not really well. They're not as good as I thought they would be. Honestly, I'm pretty disappointed in that particular fact otherwise like image quality wise and and lens uh i i think they're beautiful i like the look of them i like shooting with them but that's just really frustrating that you spend that much money on it and i i've made some like adjustments or put like a piece of tape on there when it's really frustrating me which you shouldn't have to do but yeah you know honestly i'll tell you oh go ahead I'll tell you my thoughts. I'll tell you my thoughts here because you've been <laughs> ranting for a while about your sloppy lenses. Uh, no, uh, for me, I think that a Voigtlander 10.5, you know, that's less than F1, uh, would be brilliant for a Blackmagic Pocket because you got a 3X crop. So that means you've got like a 33 or 32, whatever yeah. it is, uh, millimeter. And that 0.95, that starts to get kind of the feeling like you're dealing with a full frame. Uh, sensor in terms of shallow depth of field as opposed to most of the time even with some of these fast lenses you just kind of achieve AS, uh, ASPC or whatever kind of shallow depth of field so for me 
But when it comes to my GH3 and I've got an SLR Magic that's T0.95, which is kind of the same thing, but 25 millimeter, I almost never use it at that focal length because it's too shallow for whatever creative purposes I'm doing. It's cool for a special effect or something like that, but in day-to-day shooting, it's too shallow. Um, even for the crop, the 2X crop sensor that a GH3 or GH4 will give you, it's still most of the time too shallow for me unless I'm really desperate for light. And even then it's a little soft around the edges like the Voigtlander is and you bring it down to 1.2 and it all sharpens up and looks real nice without any flaring. So... I For actually me, I like the lens end. flares, man. Like, it's really great when you don't put the hood <laughs> on this thing and you just have a light off yeah. in the corner and all of a sudden you get, like, the beautiful flare just, like, popping up into the shot. <laughs> And I know it's like that's obnoxious for a lot of people and, and don't go the way of the new Star Trek and just have flares and everything. <laughs> but uh, it's still it's kind of sexy. The the thing I, I use this it. for at F095 is like to, uh, yesterday I was filming in a kitchen and we lost the the location that we had before, but we had shot three quarters of the scene. Well, there was brown cupboards behind the person before, and they were in focus, but mm-hmm. I didn't have those anymore, and I had somebody, somebody else's brown cupboards to shoot in front of. So then, you know, I immediately go wide open, make the background out of focus, and then people will just assume that was in the same kitchen, and I was getting a little bit artsy with that shot, and everything will work <laughs> out fine. So sure. there are it, reasons no, no, to have it. it. And have, I mean, It doesn't have you know, it's ability and everything like that. But if that's what you're considering, you're looking at a thousand dollars to try to get that F 0.95. Um, the other two options to consider is also like an SLR magic, maybe 12 millimeter, which is still pretty wide at T 1.6 only comes in at $600. And that's the cine style. That's the kind that's got built in gearing for your follow yeah. focus or whatever else you're doing. Or, the other route is if you want to spend a thousand dollars, anyways, uh, you know, a Rokinon, I think, uh, something like a Rokinon 12, a Rokinon 16 millimeter, something like that at T1.8 or something like that. You put a speed booster on there from Metabones, that total cost is going to be about a thousand bucks. Plus, you got a lens you can use on other cameras and stuff like that. So, you know, that's another way of getting super fast and super wide at the same time. Uh, it's one of those that. You know, I, I could see how it's nice, and it's nice to have one compact package, but for me, the price just for a prime lens, and considering the Rokinon series also are great-looking prime lenses, uh, it doesn't make me fall in love with it and want one right now. As a kind of lens buyer who buys too many lenses, <laughs> who shops at midnight, I um I actually do have the Speed Booster, and I have the 50mm F1.2, so I've done that in combination as well, and that's also very sexy. And because the glass is so big, you don't get any of the soft edges like you would with uh, the Voigtlanders. Mm-hmm. The thing about the 25 millimeter F1 or F095 is that if you go on eBay, because these were so popular and everybody bought one, everybody and their brother was buying these for a while when they first came out and they were really excited yeah. about them. The The market got kind of flooded and now you can buy these used for somewhere in the range of six to $700. So that puts it down into the sexy enough to own sort of range as opposed to, you know, $1,200 or $1,100. Yeah. And if you shop around, you can get them as low as like $590, $580 on eBay. Um, they're going to be used. So if you're afraid of buying used glass, that's an issue. But if you're not, then there you go. And this one, if you, if you own one good lens that's, you know, super wide, or I mean, um, has a super, yeah, exactly. You need one, maybe one in your collection. And again, I own the, uh, the fifth or the 25 millimeter F one four. And that's basically like 
that's the same focal length as this, but it's F1.4, and it's not bad. Like, I could probably live with that and not have to have this guy. But, you know, I've worked with people who, when you get to set, they're like, what's the maximum aperture on this guy? Like, make sure that thing's wide open. I don't want to see it go above <laughs> F1.2 or F1.4, and that's what I want to shoot this entire thing in. I'm not that guy, but I do like mm-hmm. to do that on occasion, uh, depending on what you're shooting or or what have you. And that shot I was kind of sending to you, maybe I'll throw that in the show notes, that was F2.8 on the Sony uh, A7S, and that was on the Tamron 24-70. to And I got as close as I could so that the background was completely washed out, and all you could see is like some outlines of some trees and stuff. Because if you saw the, the, the actual background, it was a parking lot about a quarter of a block away and a bunch of like crappy apartment buildings that no one wants to look at. So, you know, there are tons of reasons and good ways to like get shallowed up the field and make it not tacky and overused like it is in every other mm-hmm. product out there. And I am just ranting like a madman today. <laughs> so I'm going to move on. Anyway, the Voigtlander 10.5 yes. millimeter F0.95, probably sexy, probably going to be really expensive. Definitely a good idea for those of you working with pocket cams with that 3X crop. Also the 17.5 millimeter, that puts you right into about what, 52 millimeter range equivalent. So yeah. that it's is a, a honker though, that. man. Here is the <laughs> Canon 85.18, and here is the 35 and like, or the yeah. 17, and they're and they're probably about the same weight, right? Because Voigtlander is the, pretty much all metal. The Voigtlander's heavier. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's actually heavier than this guy. Like this has got some plastic in it, obviously, and this is just mm-hmm. one solid chunk of heavy metal. You could knock somebody out with this. Just clock them over <laughs> the head, and they're done. So that's another good thing about Voigtlander, all metal. All right, on down the line here. This one is actually all you, and you oh, predicted this. And I totally, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you pull my card here. I screwed up. I was like, I don't know if they can move it fast enough to do handheld, uh, 40 megapixel sensor shifting. And you were like, I think they could do it. And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> and now they're announcing a firmware update for the uh, new Olympus EM5 Mark II. I think I got those letters and numbers mm-hmm. correct. And that Probably. will give it a Uh, the ability to do this handheld now, that photo shifting technology that you were talking about in a previous episode. So tell me a little bit about this. They're just basically Uh, speeding it up or what? Yeah, they're speeding up the process. So before it would be a one second exposure, no matter what kind of you you set the shutter speed to relative, it would take about a second to gather all the images and stitch them together and do, do its business. They said that they sped that up to 160th of a second, which does start to fall in the range of handhelds. Nothing crazy, but if you are mostly, you know, holding still 160th of a second, you can get a nice clean image from that. Um, and this is really fascinating because I totally think, too, considering how fast the sensor moves for the five axis, whatever it is, stabilization they got going on, they could probably push this even further. I think a lot of that, though, comes down to, uh, possibly the chip that they're running in it and how fast the chip can react to it because in order for them also to do handheld it makes me think part of what they might do in order to get a faster shutter speed is encompass both the five axis stabilization with shifting the sensor around and moving it which it sounds like they have control over the chip to do that the question is can they do it uh in this camera or do you have to wait till the next revision but 
it's really interesting because when you think about it, the technology behind it, one sixtieth of a second, it's not actually opening up the sensor for one sixtieth of a second and exposing it like you would traditionally think. It's actually then exposing for one twenty-fifth of a second four times and then stitching all that light data together to equate and brighten up the image to what would be a one sixtieth of a second. So you're still getting the same kind of brightness, I'm sure, but maybe a little less because you have to take into account the time to move the sensor from position to position. But um, So this, this is going to stitch four images as opposed to uh, eight images? Because I wasn't that the announcement before? It was, oh, was it eight images? It was eight images yeah, yeah, when they did. Images. So then one 250th of a second to get eight images shoved into like basically a one 60th of a second handheld exposure. Yeah, because it's going to sit there and actually do... And if it's eight images, then it'd probably be like one five hundredth of a second. But it's going to expose all those spots and go cha-ching, 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 all within one sixtieth of a second. And then stitch not just the detail together, uh, but also it's going to add up the light data, kind of like a blending mode in Photoshop, which is kind of cool that it's doing all of this on the chip itself. It's going to take what each little subpixel gathered add that light to each other, as well as adding the color to each other to then pull this together. Um, I wonder what the I processing time we, is once it gathers the the pictures. Because I bet you it's probably like five or six seconds. It probably takes yeah. it a while, but it seems like there's enough buffer that they can gather together all this information. And 40 megapixels is a lot of information. So I think that's just an testament to the Olympus having a very fast, very capable buffer on the camera itself. You know, because it's built for pros and it's built for shooting. And, and this is fascinating. And I think that they can just keep pushing these limits and this is the kind of technology that Olympus is going to own for a while, but I would be excited to see this kind of stuff in cell phones and all kinds of other venues, because anything that has a sensor that moves, that is done in a way that you have total control over sensor movement. uh, This is technically possible. I'm sure Olympus owns the patent for it and we'll never see it outside of an Olympus camera for a while, but it makes it very compelling. And, um, not just for photography, but possibly uh, video as well. I don't know, so, one more Olympus uh, financial flub where they spend too much money on something <laughs> dumb or the CEO runs off with something and maybe they'll be selling these patents off like candy to strangers. True. Um, one thing to think about, though, and you mentioned processing time, the HDR mode on the Canon 60 and 5D Mark III, that's three images or maybe four images, I think three mm-hmm. images combined together. And the processing time yeah. on that with the Digic 5 processor is, um, I want to say, about eight seconds. So if this is doing yeah. eight images, they're lower uh, resolution images, you know, 16 megapixel versus yeah. 20 and 24 respectively. But you're probably going to look at a little bit of wait time. So this isn't something you're just going to yeah. whip out and shoot for you know, everything. It's just something that's kind of cool to have when you really need that crazy amount of resolution. I also wonder, I, like, I, well, will it speed up or can you do more than just eight? Like, is eight the limit or can you do even more images and get even better clarity and resolution with other settings? I, I would I would say no. Um, I think probably like a maximum return on it. Well, because it comes down to how many sub pixels are within a pixel. Yeah. And. Uh, I don't have their their math and their charts in front of me right now, but if a sensor has eight subpixels to a pixel, then taking more than eight isn't going to get you any more information because you're just moving each subpixel around to make sure it captures all of that pixel. So 
doing more wouldn't matter, but it does kind of open the possibility for other sensors that normally have a lot of moray and crap to them because they're only maybe four subpixels. Uh, they're just green, green, and a red and a blue. Uh, you could take four images with those, and then now you're bringing a lot more quality and fidelity to a sensor that before, uh, you know, people would consider not a very good sensor. So, uh, you know, and of course, I imagine that the exposure will go anything from one second to one sixtieth. So, uh, I just imagine there. I don't see any facts to back that up, but I don't imagine it's going to be a switch that says you must do one sixtieth or you must do one second exposure. Nothing in between. Um, <laughs> but. Um, I see too. Also, I mean, uh, for doing, you know, since you got to do longer exposure anyways, doing low light and stuff like that, uh, it just, it gives you that much more control. If you want to have more control over the iris instead That's of messing true. around with ND filters and stuff like that, it makes it a more usable option when you're trying to do this kind of cool 40 megapixel shooting mode. Like you said, the processing time could be long, but also too, if you're just walking around, uh, downtown or something like that, you're just in Toronto shooting shots and stuff like that. You could line it up, take your time, shoot a picture handheld, walk, walk around some more while it's processed the image and keep doing it like that as well as you know i know a few pros that would probably be interested in carrying around an olympus and getting a high as highest fidelity as they can out of it but well strapping uh, your camera down too if you strap it down already and you've like got it on a tripod and stuff and you're not doing the handheld the low light thing that you brought up is really a good point i mean you can go out into the forest and there's if you go to the olympus uh, youtube channel they've got demonstrations and examples of kind of what's going on with the sensor if you really want to dig into it but you can set yeah, this out in like stuff. a you know a dark area and then just shoot really long exposure on it and as long as the camera is still able to stitch everything together you can get something really cool and a high resolution image out of that and you're going to want to have your camera pinned down anyway because you're doing longer exposures yeah. so I think there are a definitely use cases for this thing. It's not something that's on my radar as I definitely need, but the image it stabilization like technology. The camera. I it, might. It sounds like to me you're probably going to buy the camera because I know you. I know you, and you're probably going to buy an Olympus next. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've been hovering over this for a while just because the image stabilization is so sexy in this thing. It is. I don't need it, and I honestly, like I, the reason I haven't done it yet is because <laughs> I am debating on just getting another GH4 for my collection or getting this camera. So I kind of just, I what would make more sense <laughs> for me is the GH4 to have two of those as opposed sure. to the Olympus and the GH4, but I want to play with it, and <laughs> I want to get it in my hands and mess around with it and stuff and decide if I like it. So maybe I'll... I might hit somebody up for a review unit on this or something, at least to to have it in my hands for 30 days or something to see if I like it. I don't know. We'll see if I put my money where my mouth is on this whole image stabilization <laughs> thing. Uh, speaking of money spent, Flickr has spent some money to upgrade their image handling capabilities. If you're familiar with uh, Google+, Plus, the G+, Plus system has excellent... Uh, photo handling capabilities. It does a camera roll. Mm -hmm. It does uh, some rock handling capability internally. You can crop and they have auto awesome that does stuff that you never really think you want until (laughs) you see it. And then you're like, Oh, that's really great. I love what you did there. And it looks like Flickr is kind of implementing the same thing. They're going to date and timestamp all of your photos, break them into a roll so that you have all the images from that provide all of the metadata information available, like the F stop and, uh, the shutter speed and all that stuff. And they're going to make it into something. And I'm looking at the screenshots from this and it looks almost exactly like uh, Pascal or Google plus whatever you'd like to yeah. call it. It's uh, photo roll. Do you use an online photo roll for your 
for uh, your you photos or personal for personal i use google um when it's actually a client i use dropbox just because it's easier to kind of segregate and control things that way now do you uh, have but, the auto awesome and the the picture taken from <laughs> sure, your phone immediately yeah. sent to your uh, yep. google account yeah me too it's it's so nice i do i do that cloud stuff it is it is nice and uh especially too because then it syncs with all your other devices and stuff if you want to pick up a laptop or something else and look through your photos and stuff i really enjoy it and i think google services is great and it's priced well I, at this point i feel like Flickr's playing catch up because these all look like the same kind of features where hey we're going to automatically go hey all these photos took place you know in the same location on the same day so this is an event let's treat it like an event um so, but my question is, I don't really know that many people using Flickr. I mean, Flickr had a really compelling service where you can upload as many photos as you want, but you can only see like the most recent hundred or something like that. If you didn't pay, uh, it was something like that. I think that they, they have a resolution like, limit. Um, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I want to say it's like if the image is under uh, 2000 by whatever that works out to 1366 or something like that, then it can go up for yeah. free and you can continue to see it. But if the image is higher resolution than that, then you have to pay whatever the fee is. Yahoo, I right. believe owns Flickr and it was doing really well. And then it kind of just was left on the vine to hang out and dry up. And now they're starting to add features to it again, but a lot of people have kind of left the service and moved on to other kind of more advanced things. So I don't know if that's enough to really bring people back to the Flickr ecosystem. It, it does. It seems I haven't really seen a link to a Flickr page in quite a long time, both from professional photographers and from amateur people who just like sharing stuff. It seems like a lot of people are jumping over to just running their own websites to have a lot more control over what they show. Um, or they're using other services like Behance and stuff like that to build together a portfolio uh, or Squarespace. So I, I'm just I'm confused because I, Flickr's obviously like, hey, we got features to um, set us up, but I haven't seen Flickr take on, I think, mobile market. I think that that's part of the reason is that they have a mobile app, but no one's using it because there's nothing compelling about it. And Google has the advantage of being like, we're built into your Android phone. Hey, check this box and we'll back up all your photos for you. That kind of easeability, I think, is really a death sentence for Flickr. I mean, I've appreciated Flickr, the way that they view and the download modes and the way that they have a public directory and they do... Uh, uh, the CC or yeah, Creative Commons. Yeah, uh, license. You could search for Creative Commons and stuff like that. All that stuff, really compelling, really great features. And then it just seems like now I never see them anymore. And I I can't quite put on why no one uses them because I never really used them much in the first place. I'm not sure why people are jumping service, but well, to me, it originally Flickr like was pretty pretty uh, compelling because it looked nice. It had a really nice layout, the interactive yeah. system for it and the way you like got your photos and messed around with your photos all looked really good. And then they kind of had a good community too. There was a lot of people like commenting on each other's photos and liking photos and, and giving ideas on, or, you know, even like kind of sort of photo battling. It's like, here, look at this shot. Now I've got this shot. And like, that was sort of what the social network aspect kind of kept it going, but people were moving away because it wasn't offering as much space or they, they, I think they took away, didn't they take away unlimited recently and just make it like a hundred gig or, or several hundred gig as opposed to unlimited storage for the pro users. I, I want to say there's something yeah. wacky like that, that went, went on. 
I am by no means a Flickr expert, guys, so I am <laughs> floundering here on the stuff I remember Me about too. Flickr. Um, anyway, it's a service. They're a getting better. If you guys are interested in it, go check it out. Honestly, for my personal stuff, I use mostly Google, and you're right. Anything that takes care of stuff in the background while you're not even thinking about it is the way I kind of want to go. Um, I don't know if Flickr has any auto uploads, but the whole Google Drive and Google Photos system is just so seamless and easy to use that you don't even think about it. And as a Panasonic GH4 shooter, I can log into the camera, download all the images to my phone that I've been shooting for the day, and by the time I go to have lunch or dinner, all those photos have already been processed and sent to my G Plus account. And the auto awesome thing, I know we've mentioned this, but one of the things that it does that's really cool, if you're too lazy to do an animated JPEG, <laughs> or I mean animated GIF, and you don't want to like sit there and put stuff together in Photoshop or, or whatever oh, yeah. you use, they do this really cool thing where they look at images, and if you shot burst mode of something, they basically they give you those images separately, and then they also stack them on top of each other and build you a animated GIF as well to work or to you know to see and decide if you like and a lot of times it's pretty darn cool. cool. Yeah, I it is I was, pretty darn cool. I was at a festival um, earlier this year uh, covering the event for the festival runners, and I got this shot. There was a girl dressed up as a ninja turtle, and she was swinging her uh, nightstick around or um, nunchucks or whatever. And I had the camera in burst mode, so I just grabbed a, a like a eleven or twelve continuous shots, and I ended up. I, I was just checking G plus later. And I got this great animated GIF of her just going like this in a constant loop, you know, like swinging her nunchucks around. And it was awesome. And you're like, yes, Google, I do want you to auto-awesome this. <laughs> and it even did some, like, kind of cute things. Uh, there was a picture of my wife and I uh, kissing at an event, and it added, like, some hearts that were, like, trickling down and stuff like that. And, you know, you maybe forgot to take out the trash this morning, so you just send her that picture, and, like, now things are cool again. So <laughs> Google's helped out in many ways, and I kind of like the idea that these companies are going through and analyzing your images and doing stuff for you. I know I go through and edit, but a lot of times I I start out by going through my roll of photos for that day and just selecting the ones that I think are good. And then the rest yeah. of them kind of just linger and I don't really do anything with them at all and I save them all for whatever reason and they all go into files and get organized or whatever but if they get uploaded to something like uh, G plus then Google goes through and does some basic tweaks on all your photos and sure it's nothing crazy or professional but then you go back through and you're looking at those photos and you're like hey wait a minute Picture number 37 in that last roll is actually something I kind of like now that they've done that. Maybe I'll go back and uh, mark that as a five-star photo and, and dink around with it in Lightroom a little bit more and turn it into something good. Yeah. So, you know, those sorts of things and then the easy use and having the whole image stuff. I know this was supposed to be about the Flickr story, but yeah, man, maybe is. you should just and move away from talking. Flickr and you should completely go to Google's products. I know they're watching you and they're spying on you and they're stealing your data, but you know, I'm willing to give up a little bit to get free features. So thanks Google for stalking me. And we are on a Google service right now yep. doing this cast. Yep. So I guess we are all in on this camp. Let's see. Yeah. And uh, I'm moving on down the show notes here. We mentioned USB yes. uh, 3.1 earlier in the cast. Devin, 
Tell yes. me a little bit more about the speeds on this. We're talking 10 gig. Is this really anything exciting? Are you super stoked to have a 3.1? And do you have any devices in your collection that you really need to have this sort of speed for? Uh, no. I mean, of course, progress is never a bad thing, onward and upward. Uh, but even for things like USB raids and stuff like that, uh you know, you run into an issue of how much speed do you need? It's like that kid who, you know, sets up a RAID zero between uh, four solid state drives. It's like, what, what do you have to do that takes, you know, two, you know, terabytes a second or whatever of data transfers? Uh, but it's good to see the standard, especially for new port design, like we discussed a little earlier with a, a reversible port design, at least for the smaller connector. Um and of course, it's not a bad thing. I think really this does open the door for things like external graphic cards, which can become really exciting in terms of the mobile market. Yeah, if I know they ever figure out drivers for those things, man. <laughs> They're so sketchy plugging them in and trying to boot up with something like that. I've seen demos and I was excited too <laughs> until they just crashed everything. Right, but it's it's not just a speed improvement. A new standard means usually new operating procedures in terms of uh, what is required for USB. And USB is getting closer and closer to the processor, and it's getting faster and faster. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Thunderbolt is so much faster on Mac than on Windows, because Thunderbolt... Uh, for whatever reason, marketing Intel, I don't know. Uh, it's allowed to like kind of ride right off of the PCIe Express lane of the processor, yeah. where uh, with Windows computers or IBM, whatever, it needs to go out to another, you know, the North Bridge or whatever before it heads out. So it's just, it's a little bit slower and it doesn't have that performance. And it's, it's a shame because Thunderbolt was supposed to be the end all. It's the, kind of the new FireWire connection and everything like that, but with no Windows adoption at all. Um, I'm excited to see USB picking up the slack here and becoming faster uh, and better. Hopefully, new standards like this, they keep improving. Uh, hopefully, it, things like a graphics card, external graphic card, don't look like they're a mess. For me, it's not that exciting because I don't have anything that uses it. And like you and me, if I'm doing external storage, I want it on my network. I don't want it just plugged into one computer. And so I'm more interested in getting 10 gigabit on my computer and 10 gigabit connections throughout the house, not so much about a USB three, but there's definitely, you know, especially if you're transporting a large project to somebody else, um, a 10 gigabit, if we're all working on 4k files and we're looking at raw and all this other stuff, this 10 gigabit kind of speed will be required. If you want to work off of something externally, when you're talking about these gigantic files, but what about uh, the issue with like spinning drives? Because I mean, really right now, the way SSDs stand, if you had a big project and you were trying to tote it around and you really want to take advantage of these speeds, we are talking like rating SSDs together <laughs> in order to yeah. even like saturate yeah. the amount of bandwidth that we have available. So that's a small amount of space right there. Then if you go to what you could hold a substantial project on a spinning drive, you can't even get close to saturating USB 3.0, let alone USB 3.1. So then it's like, man, I don't know if I even need this. You're completely right. I was You're first, completely right. The first I thing I thought that. of was like, oh man, I could buy a Drobo and I could throw like four drives in there and have USB 3.1. It'll be great. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I would have to fill that all up with, you know, basically RAID 0 style mm -hmm. SSDs in order to even take advantage of that. And then we still have the front side, you know, PCU or uh, CPU bus and everything to handle all the data coming in. So even if you have that big a pipe, mm -hmm. you're probably not going to be able to throw information back and forth to your computer fast enough to really utilize all of the bandwidth. And then there's overhead information and everything else and, and checksums and stuff. So now 
you were back to like, well, do I need this? And that was with the Thunderbolt as well. Uh, with Thunderbolt, like people were really excited, and the the GPU thing was the first thing I I saw that was like really exciting. And then what you know, we don't have right. that crazy so GPU me, thing that sure. I wanted on my desk where I had like four GPUs just plugged in via Thunderbolt, and I'm like doing super crazy processing all over the place. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So to put this into perspective, uh, because remember there is a big difference between bits and bytes so a 10 gigabit connection that 3.1 is offering is roughly i mean there's overhead and all kinds of things you'll never hit these talking about a gig max um mega yeah you're talking about 1.2 gigabytes a second solid state drives right now the good ones uh usually perform about 500 megabytes a second so simply having two solid states striped as a RAID 0, you're going to just about start needing that speed of 10 gigabytes per second. So it's not like you need to RAID up like 600 solid state drives to saturate this connection. You would RAID up like two or three and you would be there. And that's absolutely right. And I'm looking right now, the um, test from Tom's hardware, they were hitting about 700 uh, meg going through two SSDs rated in RAID 0. So yeah, if you want 500 gig worth of space, you know, really fast. Well, I guess that's a that would be a terabyte and the danger zone of like <laughs> yeah. raiding two drives together. There's a thing or right. you know, maybe if you raided a couple of uh, 850 Evo 1 terabyte drives together, then you have 2 terabytes of space. Maybe that is a large project. And maybe I'm just being a fuddy-duddy cuz I <laughs> probably won't ever have enough, you know, power on my desk to use this i think the only reason i'm really upset is because i want all the ssds stacked right here and i want them now and i want my gpus stacked over here and i want them now and since i don't have them i'm just bitter i think about filmmaking and how this would affect filmmaking and part of me thinks about usb is an open standard right now if you want 6k footage and you want raw and you want to capture it and get it onto your computer you're talking about a red card and a red card reader um which uses special types of connections and still take a lot of time to offload that kind of footage and i think the red card connector is like thunderbolt right Uh, right? you can get it in multiple connection styles but uh don't doesn't the uh cine raw camera shoot 6k onto just standard ssds and you can use any type of adapter you'd like so you know right uh, but then when you offload that footage how long does that take you it takes you however fast your ssd can throw stuff at the wall you know but you're not going to be able to like get it to 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 raid off of the camera because the camera i believe does record directly to an ssd with the the red cards it's it's the same way like you're basically dealing with an ssd card in you know, in whatever their their box format is. And I right. thought it had USB 3.0 as well as their Thunderbolt connector, but I might be wrong. And now I have to like quickly well, me, Google this. <laughs> let me, while you Google that, let me blow your mind for a second and just think about this as a concept because we already know we can achieve the same kind of speed in a smaller form factor than the standard size SSDs that we use in cameras. There's much smaller SSDs they use in laptops and things like that. It is not outside the realm of possibility for a company because we're kind of, you know, for more or less, we're hitting a bottleneck with uh, SSDs and consumer market in terms of availability and price just like we did with processors back after we hit you know the four gigahertz mark you could put two ssds in the same enclosure with an internal raid card that then gets represented out as a um you know 10 gigabit kind of connection you would need say to four at that point but still uh one drive 
could have a RAID inside of it to operate and run these speeds and get double the speed that you would normally get out of a card. So as you know, as much as we all argue is 6K worth it, whatever else, shooting raw and all that kind of stuff, you're right. Uh, we find ways to shrink it down and make things smaller, but there is still room here for SSDs to get faster just on their own outside of any external technology. And USB 3.1 is just a step in making sure that when that makes a jump or makes a leap, that we'll be able to get that data as fast as we possibly can. And I think that's always important because, you know, I, I love the fact that you can shoot 4K on a GH4 and you can download two hours of footage in 15, 20 minutes as opposed to back in the DVC days or whatever, where you, you had an hour tape and you'd spend an hour capturing Real-time capture. So, <laughs> I'm looking at the red mags so I, right now. They are, in fact, uh, ESATA, uh, Firewire. They do have a Thunderbolt version, and they do have a, even an older USB 2.0 version for the red mag station. So, <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you can get pretty old school on that. Uh, to your point with the yeah. rating the drives, that's absolutely right. Um if you look at it, the M.2 boards that are SSDs and you look at how the bus is configured, basically they have a set of chips and the chip is set for 128 gig or, you know, 64 gig or whatever. And they just have that many chips on the board in order to accomplish whatever data size is available for that particular drive rating. So because of that every 64 gig chip is basically in RAID 0 with all the rest of the chips on that board. Yeah. So when you take an SSD like out of the box, if you get a one terabyte drive or a 500 gig drive, chances are you're going to have at least three chips, maybe four or five chips, depending on the size of each of the ICs uh, rated together on that unit itself. And that was actually part of the uh, problem with the earlier Generation 2 SSDs. The uh, barefoot <laughs> connector controller system that they used from uh, IndieLinks had issues with keeping up with the amount of data that could be thrown to all those SSD chips in RAID 0 on the board. And so it would freeze up for a second while the buffer unloaded and then loaded back up again with the next round of information. So you could RAID two of these together. You could put some crazy thing on a board and like make something awesome. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you're right. Eventually, you know, we're going to be able to grab something the size of a memory card, you know, a compact flash card. And instead of being like what's in a compact flash card right now, it's literally going to be an SSD in there. And if you think about compact mm -hmm. flash as a standard, what was it originally? If you go way back to when I was shooting on the <laughs> D10, they actually sold spinning hard drives in a package that it was like a four gig package and it was the cf mm -hmm. card that you used for your camera and it literally had a hard drive in it and in some of yep. the cases um the standard connector for a cf card is actually just a shrunk down version of the pata standard that was used previously to sata so you could really go out and buy a freaking adapter that would take the parallel connector I believe that max is out at 133 meg and like connect from that down to a CF card. So, you know, if they do that, it's only a matter of time before, like you said, SSDs become a, the memory card of choice yeah. for your cameras. And we're not talking like, uh, the, these 3.5 millimeter and 2.5 millimeter drives. We're talking like 1.8 yeah. or even smaller, you know, and it'll be sexy, but until then, yeah. damn it. I want more <laughs> speed. <laughs> Oh, well, if anything, it means 3.1, hey, you're going to have uh, SATA 3 uh, speeds with all the features of USB, which is hot swapping, you know, uh, 
easy to use consumer connections, no eSATA or complicated mounting and unmounting of stuff. So if anything else, it shows, hey, USB is knocking on, you know, SATA's door saying, hey, we, we, we can go that fast. So, and that's always a good thing that external peripherals can start getting as fast as the internal ones. Yeah. And eSATA, man, the connectors for that have never been good. Uh, honestly <laughs> like they break it's they're crap. crappy you know don't use those i've more than once i was like oh i can just hook this into eSATA and then like you're going along copying something and it's like and you're like what oh no drive it go? it's gone <laughs> what happened did it finish writing no it just corrupted the whole file that you were working <laughs> on great let's reboot ah that standard is horrible yep. so yeah anyway yep. connectors get better guys i would like to just see everything um SDI mm-hmm. connector style and no more of this other stuff. Let's get some solid stuff for your computers. Anyway, yep. that is <laughs> okay. I haven't you eaten yet today. I'm a little like wacky too. So sorry guys if I'm extra sure. swingy army today. I totally <laughs> stayed up way too late shooting all weekend long. So I am a little bit brain crazy right now. <laughs> um, on that note, that's basically all the news we've got for this episode, but we do have some picks of the week and I'm actually going to start. Uh, Devin's already got his listed here. I know I've talked about these bags before, but I've never actually shown you in person what they look like. This is made by Matin, Mata, however you pronounce it. It's M-A-T-I-N, Matin, I would say. And these soft bags, you can buy these on Amazon for about 3 to $4. And you can see that they're nice and padded. They're stretchy. They have a clip on them. They're supported with an extra layer. They have double stitching on the bottom that makes them a little bit extra solid for your lenses. And they're padded to about a quarter inch thick. Plus, they have the nice zipped close end piece so that you can keep your lenses safe. And they come in various sizes. This is the, the smaller unit. This is the bigger one. And they're none of them, none of the sizes are more than like six bucks. So you can fit an entire yep. Voigtlander in here, close that up, and now your lens is nice and safe. This thousand dollar yep. lens does not need to rattle around in my bag and bounce up against another thousand dollar lens and etch the glass or damage the filter or whatever other <laughs> horrible things could happen. So getting these bags is totally worth it for your GH4 bag. You have your entire set of primes, a couple of zooms. You get these bags. You maybe spend 20 or $30 max to kit out your entire set of lenses. And now when they're in the bag together, they're going to bump up against soft padding as opposed to each other. So definitely something to consider, especially as small and as light as the micro four-thirds lenses are. It's well worth it to buy a bunch of these tiny bags and the medium-sized bags and just toss all your lenses in there. And just measure your lens ahead of time. You're buying them right now. I'm buying them right now, man. I'm checking prices on eBay. There's also some resellers on eBay that've got some too in different configurations. You got some with zippers and stuff like that. Everything if you you can fit L series glass to, you know. Yeah, they have some massive thing. ones. All 10 bucks, 4 bucks. Yeah, the zipper ones I so. I kind of wanted to avoid. Um I tried one of those mm-hmm. out and the it has a flap that's supposed to cover the metal portion of the zipper, right? And, but yeah. it kind of like doesn't always cover the zipper you know what i mean (laughs) and so now you have this like this kind of sharp thing that's there that can like scratch up against other stuff and it's just uh, maybe i'm like a little bit too nervous but i kind of prefer the 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 pull Mm -hmm. string type of system what i would like to see and maybe there's something out there and you guys know about it and i don't is some sort of way to have an embroidered or ironed on patch or something that tells you what lens is in each bag. Because what would be really cool Mm. is if you could turn these upside down 
and stick your lens in your bag. And then on the top, it said, Hey, this is your 17.5 millimeter. And Hey, this is your 85 millimeter. And Hey, you know, and like you had one for each one, that would be a really interesting way to go. Maybe like a button on system or some kind of like embroidery or something like that. I don't know if you can Mm -hmm. actually iron these because they are made out of some sort of synthetic material. So you might actually melt them, but, uh, there's got to be some way to like write on these. So the company that's making these in China right now, <laughs> go ahead and take my idea and start writing labels on them, and I will buy them from you <laughs> at a markup of $5. Definitely worth it. Yes. Absolutely. What is your uh, for pick? My pick of the day, yeah, my pick of the day, uh, of course, once again, odd and weird and not necessarily direct <laughs> filmmaking, but uh, I've been testing out uh, Chromebooks for the past two weeks for – some other work and some other stuff. And uh, for me personally, it's originally I thought Chromebooks are pretty silly. And the more I use them and the more I play with them, I go, I kind of figure this thing out. I kind of get what it's for. And for me personally, uh, you know, I've got a big expensive, you know, several thousand dollar editing rig at home that I do stuff on. And I go, hey, I I could go mobile. I could spend 2000 on a laptop like DJ has and edit on the go and stuff like that. And if I had more clients that did that, I'd be looking at that. But most of the time I go, Hey, I just want something that I can walk around with. It'll last me all day and just browse the web, which these days, well, web browser means that you can write scripts. It means that uh, you can remotely access your system at home. If I need to do a real quick change or re-render something or something like that, um, and this all combined with, you know, some kind of why, uh, 4G, whether it's from your provider, or you get it externally or something like that. Freedom Pop is a service along with, I think Karma's called one. But, uh, you know, you combine these two things together and I go, wow, I could really kind of pick up and work anywhere. I can work on emails really fast. I've done the tablet thing and the tablet thing works, but it's really a consumption device without a proper keyboard being built to it. And, uh, some of the battery life and so that, and just having tabs, being able to copy and paste between tabs. I know I can do it on my tablet and I do do it. And it's still a bit of a hassle and to have like a keyboard shortcut and all that kind of stuff is really fantastic on a Chromebook. And uh, I love the fact that it's kind of distraction free, or at least it can be because there's no other programs or things to do. Not many I mean, I games on there. Tabs. You don't like no, find no, yourself playing games. some kind of video game instead of doing your work. <laughs> So I love the fact that, hey, I could close all my tabs and I can open up Writer Duet or I can open up Cell Text and just start typing. And if I need to look something up real quick, I can open up a tab and go through it and look real quick. Um, you know, they're a mixed bag. You have to do your own research to find what works for you. But there's brand new ones that are 160 for 10 inches if you want something super portable. There's a great looking 1080p display by Toshiba, the Chromebook 2, which is uh, IPS to display. I tried one of those. It looks brilliant. Uh, that guy's like three. 30 if you want four gigs if you're going to use a ton of tabs and i mean that's part of it too is that they come with two gigs or four gigs but for me i'm like i just like it all being narrow of course i've hacked it i've installed linux on it i've messed with this and that and poked around in the system but i keep coming back to just i like the fact i got a, a web browser and i got my bookmarks and i can do emails i can watch youtube videos i can stream netflix and do all this other stuff and i can get all the work done that i need to get done as well as consume some content too at the same time and not worry about a charger not worry about uh you know viruses or this or that or making sure stuff is updated it just kind of works and there's kind of this brilliance to it and still having the flexibility to dial into my computer at home and render something if i need to or something like that you wouldn't necessarily edit remotely that's not really possible but if you need to do a quick fix you need to change an audio level or something to re-render hey you can do it and it's not going to kill you so 
Yeah, I tried to. Rem- I tried that. I was like, "Oh man, I could remote log in and like work on my stuff from the couch." <laughs> that was a dumb idea. I, even on my own network with like plenty yeah. of bandwidth, uh, you, if I forgot to turn the speakers off in the other room, you could actually hear the audio and then wait a little bit and then hear the audio <laughs> on the on the laptop. Yeah. But they are great, um, and all the Chrome apps have gotten a lot better too. All, all their document editing stuff is starting to yeah. like actually support stuff that you'd normally use open doc document formats as well as most of Microsoft's um, uh, Office support. So yeah, you can get Office in the cloud. Office has got a cloud version where you can just yeah. log onto a website to edit. You know. Um, and it's free to students doc. too. They have like a free yeah. program for students and teachers. So if you're out there and you need to use this for school, that's definitely worth checking out. The uh, Chrome app, it's a Chrome remote desktop app is basically really yeah. easy to use too. If you want to log into one of your other systems and for word document editing, if you have a computer that you already have office 360 or whatever installed on, you can log into that. And there sure. is no reason why you can't do document editing and that sort of thing uh, remote yeah. desktop style. It's really nice. Plus, man, they even support PowerPoints now. I yeah, I had a Samsung Chromebook for a while, and it wasn't quite enough. When I I'm a crazy tab guy, where I have like four windows yeah. open, and then I have twenty tabs in each one. So it did kind of slag for me. But my wife used it all the time and really liked it until she switched over to a Surface Pro Two. She used that <laughs> almost constantly. And the, that's a huge price difference though. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Service Pro 2. And we bought I think we bought that I don't remember what model of Samsung it was, but uh it was probably last year's top model of the 13 inch, I believe, and it was sure. only like 299 or maybe 350. And it it did most everything you would want, especially for people who don't want to spend a bunch of money on a computer and have been like suffering through using their cell phone for internet sure. access. I actually know a couple guys that like they refuse to have a computer compose in their emails. house. Yeah, they compose emails, do almost all their work from their phone. And they even yeah. have like a keyboard that's like Bluetooth that sets it their their phone sets in front of and then they type on mm-hmm. it. It's like really yeah. get a Chromebook. Get a Chromebook. Yeah. Spe- especially for the price. Uh, real quick, just cuz I've done a ton of research, I feel like I should uh, just say what's out there. If if you if you're doing a ton of tabs like I am, and you're doing at least like 15, 20 tabs, and you got YouTube playing in the background, a bunch of other crap, um, the HP Chromebook 14 with four gigs of RAM, uh, it's probably almost the fastest thing out there. There is a smaller Acer that's got an i7, but it's a 10 inch screen. If you want a 13 inch screen, the Chromebook 14 from HP uh, is going to keep up with you. And uh, the screen is kind of low resolution. It's kind of crappy like most of them, but it'll keep up with you. The Chromebook 2 from Toshiba uh, almost kept up with me. It, if you're doing less than 10 tabs, a four gig Chromebook Toshiba will keep up with you no problem. And that display is absolutely gorgeous. The viewing angles is great. Uh, it's a great thing just to watch content on too. So I'm a big fan of that one as well. But those two seem like the all around. They've got solid keyboards. They've got good track pads. I like the two, uh, the HP better than the Toshiba in terms of trackpad, but still solid all around computers. And if, if you look for a 14, you can find them on eBay for 200 bucks. Like, Do they still uh, make the, that crazy um, Pixie, I believe it was called, like the, the Intel yeah, CPU, yeah, yeah. like crazy a, a modded $1, like $1,000 Chromebook. Chromebook. <laughs> Yeah, Google, I think, still officially sells that through the Google store. So I think you can still go pick one up. I saw a used one go on sale for like $600. It's an i5. It's supposed to be like really good and sexy. I've seen a few people do some really great reviews of it, but I don't know. If I'm spending a thousand bucks, I'll just get a Surface 2. Yeah. You know, I mean, for all that money. 
or a window, you know, like an actual Windows laptop. Yeah, it's yeah, sure, thousand dollars buys. Yeah, exactly, buys you a lot of stuff. It's not like you have, you know, MacBook the idea, Air. the idea of a Chromebook is really to go to the affordable range. Like you don't want to spend yeah. more than four hundred dollars on a laptop, and you want something that will basically like meet all your needs. And they do actually and now. Work. They do actually now have uh, some video editing options available for the Chromebook. True. Um, like- they're, video editing option. Yeah, they're not gonna do anything amazing, but if you just need to like roughly put a few clips together and and add a transition and maybe like a wipe or something like that, it's something you could do. Yeah. So I messed around with it. I was also, and this is kind of a side note, but uh, I one of my friends is really hardcore into Linux, and he believes that every system in my house and in my studio should run Linux. And the only time I should touch Adobe products is with you know, running wine in the background and emulating windows so that I can have it on there. And otherwise I should be able to find a Linux version of everything. And I've tried this before and it's failed horribly when I'm trying to edit audio, when I'm trying to edit video, uh, all these things, there wasn't enough powerful resources to do pro level stuff. There was just enough resources to do like very basic stuff. And that's what the same stuff that's basically available for the Chromebook since they're both like a Linux kernel based system. But if any of you guys ha- have suggestions on this, I'm willing to do the Linux test again or even the Chromebook test again. You know, give me some options for really solid video editing in a Linux environment. You know, give me some options for some. And I'm not talking, I don't want audio programs where I have to type in hex in order to get my notes out of it. That is dumb. I'm not going to do that. That's a lot of work and that's too much effort. I want regular USB audio support and I want firewire support and I want to be able to do, you know, regular composing. And if you can't do that, then it's kind of like you're not for me. So I'm definitely open to suggestions. Video editors for Linux, let me know, guys. Devin, I'm guessing you don't have any recommendations on that. And I lost Devin's audio. And he's still gone. Uh Uh-oh. Well, I think that may conclude our broadcast day, guys. Uh, Devin and I, we've had kind of a hiccupy day anyway and been driving across country and putting out fires. So you can find Devin on his website, and that is, dang it, if I could ask him, I would just have it. Thank you, Devin, for typing that in the notes because you can still hear me. Impulsenetworks.tv. So check him out there. You can find all the rest of the stuff on dslrfilmnoob.com. And you can also check us in the subreddit. It's r slash dslr. So check us out on Reddit and swing by the site, swing by the YouTube channel. Search for us, look for us, and we will see you next time on the DSLR Film Noob Podcast. (laughs) 